You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast at the Griot Black Podcast Network that is for, by, and about the culture. I'm your host, Panama Jackson, and I'm joined today by my colleague here at the Griot, one of the most famous Negroes on planet Earth. Uh, and I had to use the term Negro because of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know him. I know him. Please put your digital hands together for the one, the only, Michael Harriet. What's going on, bro? How you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, I'm always happy to be. I'm a fan of Dear Culture more than I am, like a colleague to me, of yours. I appreciate that. I appreciate the love. We always have a good time when we do this. And that's why I wanted you to be on here today, because you are one, a noted white peopleologist. It's in your bio. It's probably it must be on your Wikipedia page. I know you have one. And what we're going to talk about today is magical Negroes versus white saviors. And specifically, I want to talk about films that kind of toe the line and have some, and make a definitive decision on whether these certain movies are more white savior movies or magical Negro movies. But it's important to kind of lay the groundwork. So what is a magical Negro? I'm going to give a definition. Then I want to hear you talk a little bit about like magical Negroes. So magical Negroes, this is a definition. I'm going to have to read this. It's a trope in American cinema where a black character comes to the support and aid of a white protagonist in a film and it usually has some type of mystical or uh special insight you know some kind of special power something that makes it so that they are helping the white protagonist in the film so when i think of like magical negroes like two specific uh instances come to mind bagger vance the legend of bagger vance will smith uh, loves a good magical Negro film, apparently. I can't do this. Yes, you can. This isn't your shot, Bagger. Nope. It's yours. He is the he and John Coffey uh, like the co- like the drink, but spelled different from who was played by Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile. John Coffey, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. Questions? Take my hand, both. You see for yourself. Those, when I think of magical Negroes, those are the first two that immediately come to mind. So what is your thought about magical Negroes? Like, break down magical Negroes for me. So one of the things I've always thought that magical Negroes are is the subconscious. You know, if you think about the devil and the angel, that old trope of on people's shoulder, there are white characters who can't summon the angel because they don't have that good part of their self. And so they have to have a black person as the angel on their shoulders. It is the good part of a subconscious that has become good through just like being black and suffering through all the suffering that black people go through. Somehow that made them good. Okay. You have any specific examples of magical Negroes that you particularly appreciate and enjoy? Oh, man, uh, there's so many. Uh, John Coffey is a good one. He's the classic one. Uh, Stephen King loves a good magical Negro in his stories. But I think my favorite one, uh, there used to be this show in the 1970s, uh, or maybe it was the 80s, I don't know. But it was about a white guy. It was like going for a jog, and he knocked over something at a swap meet. 
and it was a bottle, so he had to pay for it. And since he paid for it, they let him take it home. And in the bottle was a magical Negro genie. Seriously. And that's what the show was about. This like hip hop magical Negro genie who would come out of the, the bottle and save the day. It was like Negro Bewitched. Um, it was called Just Our Luck. Look it up. You will be amazed. I thought if I ignored you, maybe you just might go away. Is it, it just my luck? Because like in the theme song, there's a song about how he became the magical Negro, and his name was Shabu. Shabu. The magical Negro's name was Shabu. You know, that that is... This sounds terrible, but in, in the kind of way that only 1970s, 80s TV could get away with, kind of like White Shadow type stuff, you know, like you can get away with some things back then, but naming him Shabu, that's a... Okay. I've never seen the show, but I have to, I definitely want to see it now. Like you have, you've piqued my interest on, on just our luck. So I'm going to go watch and see if I can see a magical Negro genie. So the other side of this is the white savior, which obviously the, the, while magical Negro doesn't, isn't as specific. White savior is very clear, right? You get a, a white character who typically takes underprivileged or disenfranchised typically youth or people and helps them transcend their circumstances so think of luann johnson and dangerous minds she she was so good at it she ended up in the theme song which was gangsta's paradise that coolio recorded they had her all up in the video like she was a top-notch uh, white savior character. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. And one of my favorites, which is odd, but is Clint Eastwood as Walt Kowalski uh, in Gran Torino. Have you seen Gran Torino? Yes. Yeah. All right. I saw that, and he was a white savior. He was a white savior. I mean, he literally saved the everybody. He literally saved the Hmong neighbors that he had. But he got off every single racial slur that you could possibly get off in a movie, in that movie. I think the only thing I didn't hear was the N-word. And it probably was in there, I just don't remember it. But I've never seen a movie that it seemed like Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood wrote just so he could say every racial thing he ever wanted to say. Yeah, I remember that movie, man. And, it, you know, that was, he released that movie right around the time. Remember, he went to the Republican National Convention and talked to the empty chair. Uh, I thought maybe it's an excuse. Uh, uh, oh, what do you mean, shut up? <laughs> I, okay. And basically lectured Negroes on, like, how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, so, like, like, Gran Torino is the embodiment of that Clint Eastwood speech. Which was also funny because there's a there's a scene in Gran Torino where I think like there's a young white character that I thinks played by his son who is like fronting like a black dude and he stops him, pulls a gun on him and tells him basically to stop acting black. And I was like, you know what? I actually agree with this. Everything he's saying right here, I'm I'm 100 on board with. It's just wrapped around all the racial stereotypes and slurs that he could possibly use in the moment. He talks to the black dudes that way. Like, he literally had, he gave, he gave no Fs. Get off my lawn. This was 100%. He hates everybody and is going to give you all this slur, all the slurs he had. Um, but yeah, so typical white savior character. And in some of the movies that we're going to do, 
obviously because it's a white savior versus magical negro we're gonna hop into that you hit me up yesterday though we were talking about this on text about like superheroes can you break down that theory that you had about like magical negroes and superheroes yeah my theory on black superheroes is that most black superheroes are actually magical negroes when you think about it right like so you think about superman he just came from another planet and Iron Man, he had the technology to create a suit. And Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider. And Black Panther, he just comes from a magical place in Africa where they put the magic in flowers and it makes him a superhero, right? Um, you think about all of the superheroes, man. You think about uh, Storm, and right? Like all of the X-Men are mutants. But Storm, if you look at her bio, she's a African priestess. Like, she's a magical Negro. All of the black superheroes, or most of the black superheroes, are magical Negroes. If you, if you want to be a superhero, if you're white, you know, like, you know, there's, you can have tragedy like Batman and do push-ups in your basement and then start calling it a lair. Or you could just be black and have the ancestors put some magic in your pocket, right? Uh, and so one of the things I always that always I always laugh about with with superheroes is like I wonder where he got his magic from. Okay. I like that. And I think that that you know I I didn't think about that until you mentioned that to me. I was like, "Yo, I think you're actually right." Like I I can't pretend like I know all of the all of the 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 black superheroes. And as we get more, like War Machine is basically Tony Stark light, right? Like it's the kind of that kind of thing. But the ones that we know, love, and care about the most, I think you're right. Like there's just a certain innate magicalness about where they come from or who they are, like how they're born, what they're born into. Yeah, like even like just think about just think about Blade, right? Blade is a dude that lives in a world of vampires, but he more magic than a vampire because he can walk in the daytime. He more magical than the other magical white people. All right. I think you, I think I'm convinced. I think you convinced me about the about the nature of the magical negro, the magical negroness of our superheroes. Like this is this is an entire like entire study in and of itself. So we'll have to delve back into that at some point because I think you might be onto something. And I feel like there's a lot there's a lot of like threads we can pull on that one. Time for a quick break. Stay with us. And we're back. I want to get into some films, right? I want to talk about some films because I have these, like, I think most times it's kind of clear whether a film is like a magical Negro film, which again, like the Green Mile with John Coffey, like the drink, just spelled different uh, because he literally took, he was, I tried to take it back, but it was too late. Like he was able to take sickness from people and taken upon himself and it ended up getting him electrocuted and he had an amazing speech at the end of that film where he talks about why he's ready to die because of all the hate and stuff in the world and how he tried to make it better but you know white people don't want to listen basically you know what i mean but there's some films that straddle that line so we're going to start with one of the most great straddle the line films of all time i gotta be honest i love this movie anytime it's on i watch it and i'm talking about the iconic the one and only the blind side you seen The Blind Side? Of course I've seen The Blind Side. You, can, you, like, you can't have lived during that time and not seen The Blind Side. The Blind Side is, like, is, is great. Like, first of all, Sandra Bullock next to a big old black dude is, is a, like, I, I wonder how they pitched that film. Like, we're going to have Sandra Bullock save a big old black dude. And that's, that's the film. And I kind of, you know, it's based on a true story because I feel like a lot of, 
white savior-esque type films are based on true stories, right? They, they go find, like, this white person is better now, and they saved some people. So this is why it has, this is like a textbook white savior film. So Sandra Bullock plays Leanne Tui, who is the wife of Sean Tui. And they are very rich white people in Memphis. And their kids go to a very prominent private school and they come across uh, Michael Ower, who ends up becoming like an NFL player from Mississippi, from uh, Ole Miss. But he is poor and homeless and walking around outside and eating popcorn and bleachers. And, you know, they discover him. Leanne discovers him, takes her into his home and they help him ascend. Right. They help him ascend into becoming the future NFL player that he is. He's played by Quentin Aaron. This movie comes out in uh, 2009. Again, based on a true story, I'm sure Michael Orr doesn't love this telling of his story entirely because it. But anyway, so it's a white savior film in that Leanne Tui helps young Michael Orr, pulls him up and, and, and pulls him out of poverty and gives him a place to live famously. Famously giving him a what? A bed. He never had one before. And she goes to cry. This is like one of the greatest scenes in movie history, I swear. Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bed. But this is also a magical Negro film to me. Because... He shows her her privilege so much so that she takes it to her other white friends and is like, do y'all realize how privileged we are? Like we we have things, y'all like we we are we are rich white people. And this young, poor black boy has has shown me something about me. And he's made me he made me care. And and he took her to the hood. She got to see the projects for the first time. He got to see like Black Memphis. I mean, she got to see Black Memphis. You know, she gen- he genuinely opened up her world. He enlightened her. So I struggle with this one. Like, where do you stand on the blind side? Tell me about your blind side thoughts. Yeah, the blind side is a white savior film and a magical Negro film because it, he basically is the blind side's version of Giant Coffee, right? He takes the sickness out of Sandra Bullock, which is privilege. And he's magical because not not just him being so good, but then he has, like, a kind of super talent, which is being big and black and playing football. And so it's both a, a white savior, savior and a magical Negro film, and, and it contains, uh, like you said, one of my favorite parts of all white savior movies is when they go to the hood and they pull up and there's always rap music playing and, and Negroes standing outside. Cause you know, like Negroes be hanging outside on the corner. And you can't forget this part. Michael Ower actually saved SJ, who is Sean Tui Jr.'s life. They got in a car accident, but he put his arm out and he stopped the uh, airbag from hitting SJ, SJ just had some scratches and they had that moment like, ma'am, I don't know what happened. Like uh, impact like that typically would have had more damage. And then she sees his arm and he had put his arm out. I tried to stop it. I tried to stop it. Boy, that boy is a magical Negro. He's a superhero too. So he, this, this, this fits into your superhero thing. Like I really think Michael Orr in the blind side is a superhero. If you had to pick, 
whether this was more of a white savior film or a magical Negro movie, which one, which way would you go? I think it's more of a white savior film because this movie isn't even about the, the black kid, right? It is really just about look at how we saved this Negro from definite doom. Like we are the heroes in this story and it's definitely a white savior movie. Yeah, I definitely te- lean towards White Savior myself just because of the... I mean, it's it's about Leanne Tui, really. It's really about her and her growth as a human and how she expanded her world. She put him in the Christmas pictures, right? Like, she got... Which was also a very funny scene because her uncle calls and is like, you know, I, I done thrown a couple cold ones back, but y'all are weird. There's a colored boy in your, in your, in your card. Loved it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to delve into some more films that debate whether or not we're talking magical Negroes or white saviors. Some of the most classic movies of all time. Stay tuned right here on Dear Culture. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture. We're talking magical Negroes versus white savior films. We're looking at some of the greatest white savior or magical Negro movies of all time. And there's no discussion about magical Negroes and white saviors without talking about one of the most controversial films of the last five years. I'm talking about none other than Green Book. And if you know this, if you know anything about this movie, you know that once it dropped, people were pissed about the fact that it was titled Green Book when that was such a small part of the film that the movie didn't even center the black dude, Dr. Don Shirley. It was really just about Tony Lip. Uh, And it made him look like it was more about him than it was Don Shirley. When Don Shirley really it's about it's called Green Book. It should be a movie about traversing the South and what black people had to go through. But no, it's really a movie about Tony Lip making life easier or helping out Don Shirley. Um, Came out in 2018, starring Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. Uh, I'm it made the it made the uh, the 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 Oscar rounds like like everybody was talking about this film. What are your first Green Book thoughts before we get into Magical Negro versus White Savior? Well, first of all, I think Green Book did win the Oscar for Best Picture. I think so. I feel like they named it Green Book because white people had never heard of the Green Book and they knew that black people would watch it because. Obviously, it would be a movie about the Green Book, um, but the Green Book is 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 one of the fun. Like to black people, it's a comedy because the whole premise of it is like, hey, we're going to get one of the most talented people on Earth to, and but he needs like a regular media. Like I don't even know if you would call. And mediocre, but like he just needs a like a, a regular wife beater wearing white guy to save him, and that's going to be the premise of the movie. Like that's one of my favorite things about this whole genre, is that like, the whole movie can be summed up in one pitch in the log line. Like a white dude drives a black guy through the South. Y'all want to buy it? Fun, but why you break my balls? Because you can do better, Mr. Balalonga. Which is what, you know, and it's fair that this really upset everybody because one, the title Green Book was like, it wasn't about that, right? It was really 
if this if this movie had a different title, I think it's better received. But you use like a very important facet of black culture and black history to name a movie and very, very rarely touched on it. Like it just wasn't really the focal point. Two, it was supposed it was billed as like a movie about friendship between like a longstanding friendship between these two individuals that started here on this trip. But it really was a movie about the redemption arc of Tony Lip. Like it was about his growth as a person. Don Shirley, we're just more surprised. Like, dude, is this guy this out of touch? Like, we spent the whole... Like, they treated him like... And he had to be saved all the time, right? He was out here... Um, You know, he had to be rescued from the YA because he went went on a date with somebody. And it, it was a... You know, he find out he's gay and they, like, they release it. They release it that way. There was some controversy about that with the family and all kind of stuff. So, you know, I... I, I like the movie just as a film, but I understood all the controversy around it. Like, it was, all the controversy was well-earned. And poor Mahershala Ali, he actually won an Oscar for this as a supporting role. And, you know, he had to address that. He couldn't fully appreciate it because black people was not having it. But let's break down the Magical Negro versus White Savior part. So I'm going to start with the Magical Negro. Here's why, I think, here's why I think it's a Magical Negro film. Don Shirley not only cures the racism of Tony Lip who opens the film racistly throwing glasses away that the black people who were there to fix something in his home, like he, he threw those cups away because they drank out of them. They drank lemonade out of it. By the time Tony lip returns back to New York after this whirlwind drive around the South, he is no longer racist, right? He, or he's, he's not only no longer racist. He definitely loves Dr. Don Shirley, but he invites him to his home for Christmas dinner and somehow this cures his family's racism because his family was definitely not feeling black people either. And all of a sudden they're all like, yeah, come on in. Everybody bring this, bring this wonderful magical Negro to our table to eat. So he was magical. Curing racism is a really big deal. And, and I think if we had more people like him, then I think racism could be could be solved. Time for a quick break. Stay with us. And we're back. But I think the white savior stuff is really strong here. Uh, he introduces Don Shirley to fried chicken. I've got the bucket so you could have some. I've never had fried chicken in my life. Will you believe You people love the fried chicken, the grits and the collard greens. I love it too. I mean, he had this man eating fried chicken in the back of a car, and I don't, a white man introducing a black man to fried chicken, he was excited about that. That That's, that's a really strong point for a white savior. Um... He literally saves his life multiple times. But the most damning and important thing here that I think turns us to a white savior film, he introduces this black man to black juke joints in the South. Like, the black dude don't know nothing about this part of black culture, and the white guy is the one that introduces him to this stuff. So I'm, I'm going to have to lean on white savior here. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going with Magical Negro. Right? Okay. Because... The mo the movie was essentially about Don Shirley saving the white dude, right? Like he like it wasn't that the white dude was doing him like you know he had a job, right? Like he he essentially got done the favor, but Don Shirley first of all like they framed the his musical ability as almost like a a magical power, like a superpower. And then again, they had, to your point, they had, they do have the, like the juke joint scene was the equivalent of rolling up in the hood with the rap music playing. 
Um, so there was, there was, there was that. He's only the greatest piano player in the world. That right? You're good. Don't be shy, Dot. Tell her who you are. Show me. But again, Don Shirley was was John Coffey. He he sucked the racism out of his him and his family. And so I, I think I got to go with Magical Negro. Um, and tell me this, though. Do you think that there is any way that when they were ready to make this movie and somebody said, what's this, what's this movie about? Do you think there's any way that they didn't say it's like reverse driving Miss Daisy? Yo, if, they had to say that, right? Oh, absolutely. Look, if driving Miss Daisy doesn't come up while they're talking about this film, then the people who made it are 100% unaware of anything going on. Like every, that, that's, and I can't believe I didn't even mention this in my opening. This is effectively, like you said, the reverse driving Miss Daisy. One of the first things, every joke that we started lobbying on social media was, it all started with driving Miss Daisy, right? Because black people see this stuff immediately, right? We look at this film and it's like, yo, they really just made driving Miss Daisy and called it Green Book. So they just disrespected black history. Called this thing the Green Book, barely focused on that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, you know, I'm with you on it being the Magical Negro movie, but I'm still stuck on the fact that, I mean, he introduced this black man to fried chicken. Yeah. Had to tell him how to eat the fried chicken. Introduced him to uh, black rock, to rock and roll. Remember, they're in the car, he's playing music. Like, you don't know this music? Like, he introduced him to black culture. Like... The black guy in the car who even says it's like, I'm blacker than you. I mean, and, and no fight broke out because those should be fighting words. Thoughts? Yeah, I think, though, at the end of the movie, to me, the, the, the judgment on whether it is a white savior or a, a magical Negro is at the end of the movie, who ends up better? And the white guy won. Right. The white yes. guy, he, you know, got his racism demons exercised out of his body. He got his family's racism demons out of his uh, exercise, out of his body. Um, he don't have to throw away glasses anymore. He got a job. Uh, he got a friend out of the deal. And the black guy just, uh, I mean, essentially what the black guy got is, what he was supposed to get out of the deal the whole time. He just wanted a ride. He just wanted somebody to drive him. <laughs> and, you know, he did get a bonus, though. He did get a white friend, and he get to, got to eat at white people's house. So I guess, you know, that's about 50-50. But I still say the white guy won. It's a magical Negro movie. That's a very fair breakdown. I actually really like that as a metric because that makes this next movie – it throws that whole thing in flux. Like, so now I got to see where you land on this because at the end of this one, both the black guy and the white guy win. Time for a quick break. Stay with us. And we're back. So we're going to talk about none other than 2005's movie Hitch starring another uh, magical Negro savant or the same one, Will Smith, as Alex Hitch Hitchens and Kevin James as Albert Brenneman. And this is a movie where... Will Smith plays Hitch, who is effectively a high-class matchmaker. Like, he specializes in, I think he says, helping people get out of their own way, right? So his superpower is effectively helping 
really goofy, mediocre-looking men be seen by really hot women to the point where they end up married, successfully married to these women that they probably would never have a chance with, right? This is his superpower. Uh, by asking if it was diet, she took it as you trying to imply that you thought she was fat. Go get a red rose, get a regular Coke, tell her she's everything you never knew you always wanted. Any problems, give me a call. And he does this in the shadows, right? Like he's effectively like the invisible man out here making life, making life and love connections, but he doesn't seem to love love. He's doing it kind of out of spite because years ago, his his boo, the woman he was in love with, left him for somebody else and he became, to kind of mask his hurt, he turned into somebody who, quote, helped people find love. Um, so his magical Negroness is helping people get out of their own way, which is a very substantial thing. I mean, there are entire therapy organizations who focus on this, right? Like getting out of your own way. Um, I call this also a white savior film because Albert Brenneman, helps Hitch realize what he's been doing is that he's not actively in it for the love. He's in it for the sport. And that in turn creates a love, like Alex Hitchens, Hitch rediscovers love. He discovers that he has love for somebody and he has to go out and get it. So they both help each other grow as human beings uh, in a very comedic way. Now, Hitch teaches uh, Albert how to dance somewhat even though not that but the the caveat here is almost nothing that hitch taught albert was used in order to secure the love of allegra cole you live right here okay this is home there it is i want to see none of that whereas i think the lessons that albert taught hitch helped him discover who he was and go out and get his woman what are your thoughts on hitch well, you know, the first thing I have to commend Hitch for is he found out a way how to monetize being a magical Negro. Because that's one of the problems with magical Negro movies is that they can't figure out how to monetize it. Maybe a bag of Vance, you know, his his caddy fees, he kind of monetized it, but he wasn't making a big profit. He only got $5. Yeah, like Hitch was. Hitch, Hitch you know, had a whole industry around his magical Negroness. And so we have to commend his entrepreneurial spirit. Fair enough. So where do you land on this one? I mean, this kind of throws your who won at the end thing out the window. They both successfully landed the women that they were looking, that they were in love with, but that's how I'm looking at it. How do you, so to me, this is, this is definitely more of a, a magical Negro movie just because of, like you said, you know, Hitch turned it into an industry and was out here, you know, he was he was changing lives like Albert Brenneman changed one life, but Hitch changed lives through New York City like he was out here getting it. So I, I tend to lean towards the magical Negro. But where do you lean on this film? I agree with you. It's magical Negro, right? It's um, it's the old magical Negro what, that the Negro, the magical Negro was so dumb. He didn't realize the magic was inside him the whole time. So he he was a magical Negro who was more magical than even he realized. Hmm. That's good. You're good at this, boy. I, I'm telling you, good. You're good at this one. Time for a quick break. Stay with us. And we're back. All right. We're going to quickly do one more film because this is one that I, I realized late. And I was like, you know what? I never actually thought about this as a magical Negro versus white savior film. Because I actually really like this movie and I don't like laugh at it. I enjoy it as a film, but it has the tropes. So I'm talking about Finding Forrester, which came out in 2000, which uh, stars Rob Brown as Jamal Wallace and Sean Connery as uh, William Forrester, who is a legendary author who only wrote one book, 
but this one book is like one of the great literary uh, books of all time. And they both live in the Bronx. Jamal meets, he meets William Forrester because William, because Forrester ends up like grading his essay. Like, I can't remember exactly how the book bag ends up in his apartment, but he ends up grading his essay. And then Jamal keeps going back to his, his, he keeps going back to his apartment and they establish a friendship. And in this friendship, Jamal ends up taking William out of the house, which is something he never does. So he's basically an agoraphobic. Like he doesn't leave. Like he never leaves his apartment if he can help it. And he reintroduces William Forrester into the academy. Like, like the he brings him out into the literary world. My name is William Forrester. I'm not one up there. They got some contest at school with his writing thing. You ever enter one of those? Once. Did you win? Of course I won. Like money or something? The Pulitzer. In true white savior fashion, though, William Forrester edits this man's essays. He helps him become a greater writer, providing him the opportunity for greater success in life as a writer. And he's not only that, he's a he's like a probably a five star basketball prospect. He's going to go play D1 ball and be an amazing writer at the same time. Like he could get an academic scholarship. So I think William Forrester elevated his game as a writer while Jamal Wallace showed he brought William Forrester back into the fold of humanity. So I don't even know where I land on this one. What are your thoughts about finding Forrester? Man, this is like the AP uh, white savior magical Negro final exam, uh, right? <laughs> um, like when you, once you beat all the other white saviors, <laughs> once the magical Negro beat all the other white saviors, then you got to get to finding Forrester. Um, finding Forrester, first of all, is great in that the char- the black dude's name is Jamal. Let's just start there, right? Black and then it contains another one of my f- favorite favorite white savior tropes is when you, even going back to Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino, the ornery white dude that meets the, the young, brash, black dude, right? Um, I, I love like when ornery white dudes find themselves in somebody who's their exact opposite because, you know, we're not so different after all. But, yeah, I love this movie. It's like the height of white savior movies. And, and and Magical Negro movies. So where do you lean? If you had to pick one, what side do you lean on? Uh, whew. I'm telling you, man, I'm so nervous about this. Because um, this is a hard one, man. I agree. But I have to... I, I, I think I gotta lean toward Magical Negro. Here's why. Okay. If Jamal was white... It would not be amazing. Like, it wouldn't even be a movie that a white dude can write. Like, his magical power in this movie was like he was just a smart dude. So that is a magical Negro in and of itself. He was James Bond's conscience, right? And here's the thing, right? This is why it is a magical Negro to me. Because you got to ask who got the most out of the relationship, right? Sean Connery, you know, he came out of the house. He, you know, restarted his career. He he got the respect that he deserves from his peers and from the literary world. 
And Jamal was going to be a great writer anyway. Like, Sean Connery gets too much credit in this movie for, like, teaching this talented writer how to be what? A talented writer. So the magical Negro gave more to the white savior than the white savior gave to the magical Negro. So the magical Negro only kind of gets what they were going to get anyway, right? In the Green Book, uh, the guy was still a talented musician at the end, like he was in the beginning. He got his ride. Um, so I think I think we have to go with Magical Negro for Finding Forrester because he was the magical, most magical Negro ever. He's like Negro, uh, Rudolph the Negro Reindeer. He had a very shiny <laughs> nose, which was his writing career. You know, I got to say, that is a compelling case you just made. The whole, they were going to get what they were going to get anyway. Now, they might have got it in a more succinct fashion or, you know, they but they got where they were going to get. You know, and, and speaking of finding Forrester, I mean, Jamal, by going to the school, and he helped William Forrester one-up that teacher who... You know, was trying to was 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 trying to clown Jamal in the first place. Like he basically let him show up, become the man. He shows up at the at the writing competition, and everybody's like, "That's William Forster, wow!" And then he reads the piece, and everybody's like, "That's is amazing." Like, yeah, that's actually Jamal's sucker. You know, you suckers got served. You know what I'm saying? And and they get to like walk off into the sunset. So you're right. I mean, Jamal was just doing his thing, and William Forster got to have the glory. Finding Forrester as the you got served of writing, first of all, that's a brilliant analogy. Um, that, you know, because I know when I be in writing competitions, um, I never think of it like that, right? Um, so, like, he was in a writing bee. <laughs> this is one of the great uh, conce conceptions of this movie. That's what happened. That's effectively what happened at the end of this movie. Like... You know, he got served. They played him. They they played this one particular teacher who was causing all these issues, and and you know William showed up for Jamal because he liked him as a person because the magical Negro showed him love and care and all that. And he so you're right, you're right, bro. Like you know, I you've made very compelling cases about all this stuff. Like I'm literally, I had to take notes. I'm over here taking actual notes just based on the things you said. The black dudes always get what they was just going to get in the first place. The white guys always come out on top. The white people always like far exceed where they were ever going to be in life by the virtue of the magical Negroes showing up. And I really have to study hard when I know I'm going to be on Dear Culture because I know like you are the movie nerd. So I got to I got to study hard. So I really had to do uh, look into Finding Forrest and pull out everything that I knew about it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I appreciate that. So we're gonna take one final break here at Dear Culture, and when we come back. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come back with a black recommendation. Well, I don't think we're gonna force Michael Harris to give us another black fashion. He done given us so many. I don't even know if he has any left. But we're definitely gonna get a black recommendation. So stay tuned right here on Dear Culture. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture, and I'm still joined by Michael Harriet, uh, the homie colleague, one of the one of the the, the noted uh, black thinkers that we have at this time and we just got finished talking about magical negos versus white saviors and in true form he's literally changed the way i think about some of these films altogether, and i'm appreciative of that now typically here at dear culture when we end an episode we ask about a black fashion but michael harry's been here so many times i can't ask this man for black fashion every time but i do want a black recommendation something that you're into right now looking at something you're personally working on whatever you think 
that other black folks need to be up on. So do you have a black recommendation for me? My uh, black recommendation is a Showtime series uh, that just aired. It's, you know, you can watch the entire series. You can binge it. It's called Let the Right One In, and it's based on, like, a Swedish film, and then they made an American movie. But it also has a white savior and a magical Negro in it. And you're going to have to watch it because I don't want to spoil it for you. But Let the Right One In, that Showtime series, not the movie, not the American movie, but let, watch Let the Right One In. Bro, you just put me up on game. I've never even heard of that. So I'll, I'll definitely check that out. I love me a good white savior, magical Negro, anything. And it's a series. I'm all in. I'll definitely check that out. Michael, we appreciate you here at Dear Culture. Obviously, uh, one of our more fun guests anytime you're around. We've had some fun doing these things. Please tell the people where they can find you, what you got going on, and where they can check out anything you have happening. The floor is yours, sir. Yeah, you can find me on the Grio Daily. Uh, same place you're watching this, wherever you're listening to this. You can watch or listen to the Grio Daily, and we—it's kind of like Dear Culture, but we talk more about race and politics and social issues. So it's like, it's like Dear Black People and not Dear Culture. Um, but you can check us out there, and of course, Black AF History, which will be released on September nineteenth. So look out for that. Oh, we got a we got a release date. We got a, That's the first I'm hearing about that. We got a release date. That's awesome. I mean, I cannot wait for this book. I'm I'm so excited for your book to come out, brother. I'm so proud of you. Uh, excited for it. Can't wait to get a copy of it. Start reading it. Uh, yeah, definitely check out uh, the Griot Daily, Michael. Your ability to like do these deep dives into cultural issues and just ideas and all that, bar none. You know this, but. Bar none. I always enjoy those. I genuinely love your podcast. I like listening to it. I always learn something. And that's like the best part about it, right? You always, the opportunity to learn something. Uh, you can never stop learning. So thank you for joining us here at Dear Culture. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, make sure you check out all the other shows on the Grio Black Podcast Network, aside from Dear Culture, including the Grio Daily, The Blackest Questions, um, Writing writing Black with Maisha Kai. So you know, thank you for listening. My name is Panama Jackson for the Grill Black Podcast Network and Dear Culture. Have a black one. The Grill Black Podcast Network presents Dear Culture, Truish Black Stories. When you think of sheer artistry, sheer creativity, um, the ability for someone to bring Black people together in the most fundamental ways. It's, you know, I would say, of my four, Randy Watson's my number one. When the news about Ricky first broke, what I heard about it is the thing you hear about, you know, every time somebody Black dies, that it was gang-related. That means the police don't know what happened, so they just said, probably the gangs, probably, you know, the other Black dudes. When I think of Akiva. You know, um, I think about, I just think about how impressionable white people can be. I think about how, you know, if you watch that movie again, you know, she should have lost like three times. Where were you when you heard the story about them suckers getting served by Wade's dance crew? You know, it's crazy that you mentioned this. So as a New Yorker, right, everyone knows where they were. 
on 9-11, right? You know, a couple years later, right, 2003, everyone hears about this crazy moment in a boxing ring, because that's where dancers do get out, right? In boxing rings. If you could say something to Ricky right now, what would you say to him? Ricky, you shouldn't have never got that girl pregnant. You knew I had a crush on you. You should have got with me instead. Moments in black culture examined like never before. Join us as we dive into the black moments that changed us, that changed the world. Make sure to subscribe to Dear Culture so you never miss an episode.